Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well. And I don't have any bumper music on this episode today. We're going a little bit bare bones because my sound engineer, who is my son, is in Virginia visiting family this week. And quite frankly, I don't know how to put the music onto the beginning and the end of the episode. That's something that I will sit down with him when he gets back and figure out how to do. So this, if this comes up again, I can actually put that on, actually pretend like I know what the hell I'm doing this podcast thing. But as of right now, I have no idea how to do it. I'm not going to try to and, and screw up 30 minutes of recording. So we're just going to go go plain for today. And we're just going to focus on the words of Thomas Paine because we're jumping back into common sense. We're going to do the next couple of sections of this book. Uh, just like the first one, there is a ton of good thoughts, a ton of good information. So let's just jump into that right now and let's see how long this takes us, shall we? Now, the name of this section is Of Monarchy and Hereditary Secession. Now, it's not really chapters. It's not divided up like that, but it does have different sections with uh, titles on them. Uh, But let me read you a chapter here, and this will give you a pretty good idea of how he feels about the monarchy and hereditary secession. But there is another and greater distinction for which there is no truly natural or religious reason can be assigned, and that is the distinction of men into kings and subjects. Male and female are the distinction of nature, good and bad the distinctions of heaven. But how a race of men came into the world so exalted above the rest and distinguished like some new species is worth inquiring into, and whether or not they are the means of happiness or of misery to mankind. So it's pretty clear that Thomas Paine really didn't think very much of rulers or leaders or even people that sought to be in that position. And something that jumps out at me in this section is how much it sounds like he's talking about our political system today. Now, he's writing this 250 years ago, or or near enough as it makes no difference. And it sounds like any kind of political discussion at a bar you can hear anywhere in this country right now. All you've got to do is anytime that he says the word king or royalty or rulers just substitute the word politician and it sounds like he's talking about the shit show that our political system has become but he goes on to say governments by king was first introduced into the world by the heathens for whom the children of israel copied the custom it was the most preposterous invention the devil ever set foot for the promotion of idolatry the heathens paid divine honors to their deceased kings and the Christian world hath improved on the plan by doing the same to their living ones. How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to a worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Now you may be asking yourself, how am I applying those words from 250 years ago to our current political system, because we don't have titles passed down hereditarily. Well, yeah, yeah, we actually do. It's not automatic. We have to be stupid enough to vote for these people. But these people are getting into Congress, and they'll stay there for 40 years. That's not at all what our system was set up to handle. People are not supposed to stay in Congress for that long. You're supposed to serve a term, maybe two, and go back to your life. And these people are getting elected in their early 30s, and they finally retire when they're so old they can barely walk up to the podium anymore to give a speech. I mean, look at Robert Byrd, the senator from West Virginia. He had to literally die for people in West Virginia to stop voting for him. He probably got quite a few votes in the next election, even after he was dead. And as far as passing it down to family members, we're starting to do that a lot, too. You know, I mean, we had 
George Bush one and George Bush two, which I think George Bush, both of them did a pretty good job. Uh, Bill Clinton was president and then Hillary Clinton ran for Senate. She tried to become president. They're talking about Michelle Obama running for president. You know, just because your spouse was president does not mean you'll make a good president. I know that Bill Clinton was very popular. And, you know, I didn't think Bill Clinton was a bad president. I don't like a lot of the stuff he believes in. But Bill Clinton figured out something that I wish a lot of presidents would figure out. And is that the less that I do, the better my presidency will be remembered and I'm a firm believer in the old saying that he who governs less, least governs best, if I can talk. But yeah, I think Bill Clinton figured that out. Because if you go back and look, and I mean, everybody touts Bill Clinton as this this fantastic, well, everybody on the left anyway. But they tout him as this, so, such a fantastic president. If you go back and look, he really didn't do much during his presidency. He just kind of kept his head down and, you know, dodged a scandal or two along the way. But, but for the most part, he kind of took a hands-off, back-away kind of approach. And if more of our politicians would do that exact same thing, this country would run a heck of a lot better. Congress will go on strike every once in a while and just you refuse. You know, we're not doing anything until this gets signed. And I know it's never going to be long before that gets signed or they come to a compromise because people in Congress do not want us to see how little our lives would change if they would just go away and never come back. So they're not going to pull that crap for very long because they have to tell themselves that they're doing something. And really all they're doing is hurting us. They're just getting in the way. But imagine how bad it would be if we didn't have the option to vote those people out. I mean, that's almost never used, but we do have the option to vote these jackasses out if we decide to. Most of the time, they just you know, the incumbent just cruises to re-election unless things are just really going horrible. But just just imagine if... That was what they were going to do for the rest of their lives, and then we had to deal with their idiot son or daughter after they passed away. Uh, Thomas Paine says this, To the evil of monarchy we have added that of hereditary secession, and as the first is a degradation and lessening of ourselves, to the second, claimed as a matter of right, is an insult and an imposition on posterity. For all men being originally equals, no one by birth could have the right to set up his own family in perpetual preference to all others forever. And though himself might deserve some degree of honors for, from his contemporaries, yet his descendants might be too, I'm sorry, might be far too unworthy to inherit them. One of the strongest natural proofs of the folly of hereditary right in kings is that the nature disproves it. Otherwise, she would not so frequently turn into ridicule by giving mankind an ass for a lion. Most wise men, in their private sentiments, have ever treated hereditary right with contempt. Yet it is one of those evils which, when once established, is not easily removed. Many submit from fear, others from superstition, and the more powerful part shares with the king the plunder of the rest." And that brings up something kind of interesting that we usually don't think about when we talk about the lineage of kings. You know, we usually we're talking about four or five generations into it when, you know, the offspring, number one, they've been inbred because these royal families would just marry amongst themselves over and over. But the children by this time, they're also they're spoiled, they're pampered, they're soft. But you got to remember that usually the first individual in the line of kings actually deserved to be a leader. Now, whether that's through military might, which isn't always a bad thing, um, because they conquered new lands or they 
fought off some invader or they were just very good at diplomacy and compromise and they were able to bring the region together usually the first in the line actually deserves to be king and actually deserves to be in charge but even that king or queen's very first generation they're not going to be the same people because they're going to be brought up in a completely different environment and they're going to be completely different people. Now, maybe they'll do a good job. Maybe they won't, but you're just tossing a coin at that point. It's, I mean, you're basically, if you just randomly picked somebody out of a population, would he or she be a good president? Maybe, maybe not, but you don't know because you're just choosing somebody at random. What's the exact same thing with hereditary secession. It's just, a roll of the dice. You may get an Alexander the Great. You may get a Nero. You just don't know. And to continue this thought, Thomas Paine goes on. England, since the conquest, hath known some few good monarchs, but groaned beneath a much larger number of bad ones. Yet no man in his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. A French bastard landing with an armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally origin. It certainly hath no divinity in it. However, it is needless to spend much time in exposing the folly of hereditary right. If there are any so weak as to believe it, let them promiscuously worship the ass and lion and welcome. I shall neither copy their humility nor disturb their devotion. Thomas Paine then goes on to talk about why the children of these men and women are often not good rulers. Men who look upon themselves born to reign and others to obey soon grow insolent. Selected from the rest of mankind, their minds are early poisoned by importance, and the world they act in differs so materially from the world at large that they have but little opportunity of knowing its true interests, and when they succeed to the government are frequently the most ignorant and unfit of any throughout the dominions. Which is exactly what I said. You know, these, these children grow up pampered. They become very spoiled. They think everything they do is just absolutely brilliant because everybody around them is afraid to say anything negative to them. Sort of like uh, Kim Jong-un. You know, he, I'm sure he's never been told that anything he did was wrong or anything less than divinely inspired. And, and you get these nut jobs in charge is what you wind up with. You know, you go to the mall and you see these kids throwing a fit and their parents won't, won't smack them on the butt and tell them to stop crying. These are the people that wind up in charge when you have hereditary secessions. And keep in mind that Thomas Paine was born and grew up in England. So he saw the results of hereditary secession for himself gave him a little bit of a insight into what he was talking about here. Uh, but he, he ends up this section uh, by saying, Of more worth is one honest man to society and in the sight of God than all the crowned ruffians that ever lived. Which brings us to the next section, which is titled Thoughts on the Present State of American Affairs. Up to this point, he's basically talking about why England may feel they have the right to rule and why it's a bad idea for America to continue under that continue under that system. Uh, in this next, he starts to make arguments for why America should break away. Uh, and one in particular was a very good point that I had never really considered. We'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, but he opens by saying this. In the following pages, I offer nothing more than simple facts, plain arguments, and common sense, and have no other preliminaries to settle with the reader than that he will divest himself of prejudice and prepossession, and suffer his reason and his feelings to determine for themselves, that he will put on, 
or rather that he will not put off, the true character of a man and generously enlarge his views beyond the present day. Volumes have been written on the subject of the struggle between England and America. Men of all ranks have embarked in the controversy from different motives and with various designs, but all have been ineffectual, and the period of debate has closed. Arms, as the last resort, decide the contest. The appeal was the choice of the king, and the continent hath accepted the challenge. Now, I've got to uh, make a quick correction here. I was under the impression that this was written leading up to the revolution, and that's just because of my ignorance as to when the what the actual starting dates of all this stuff was. But at the time of this publication, England had sent troops. The battles of Lexington and Concord had happened, and England had occupied Boston. So open conflict had broken out, and this was Thomas Paine's attempt to get more of the colonists on board with the revolution to pull people away from being loyalists, basically. But at the time that this was published, the revolution had actually kicked off. And now we've reached the part where Payne really starts to get into the meat of his argument. I have heard it asserted by some that as America hath flourished under her former connection with Great Britain, that the same connection is necessary towards her future happiness and will always have the same effect. Nothing can be more fallacious than this kind of argument. We may as well assert that because a child has thrived upon milk, that it is never to have meat, or that the first 20 years of our lives is to become a precedent for the next 20. But even this is admitting more than is true, for I answer roundly that America would have flourished as much and probably much more had no European power had anything to do with her. The commerce by which she hath enriched herself are the necessities of life, and will always have a market while eating is the custom of Europe. But Britain is the parent company, some say then more the shame upon her conduct. Even brutes do not devour their young, nor savages make war upon their families. Wherefore the assertion, if true, turns her to reproach. But it happens not to be true, or only partly so. And the phrase parent or mother country hath been justifiably adopted by the kings and his parasites, with a low, papistical design of gaining an unfair bias on the credulous weakness of our minds. Europe, and not England, is the parent company, country of America. This new world hath been the asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberties from every part of Europe. Hither have they fled, not from the tender embraces of the mother, but from the cruelty of the monster. And it is so far true that of England that the same tyranny which drove the first immigrants from home pursues their descendants still. This argument is part of what I had never really considered. You know, of course, England controlled the colonies, and all of the trade, therefore, went through England. But most of the people in this country were not English descent. I mean, we had Italians, we had Germans, almost all of my ancestors are German. I've got a little bit of Irish in me, but they didn't come over until the potato famine, and that didn't happen until 1845. But everything went through England, even though we had ties to all these different countries in Europe. But because England controlled the colonies... Anything that England found itself in the middle of, we were automatically tied to it because we were an English colony. And something that I had never really considered is that we were getting pulled into wars with all these different European countries simply because England was at war with them. And one of the examples that Thomas Paine gives is uh, during the Seven Years' War in 1757, England invaded the, the Duchy of Hanover, and there were American conscripts that were involved in that campaign. The 
commander of the army in that campaign did something very strange for the time. Uh, he launched a wintertime offensive. It seems strange to us, but for a long time through human history, you exclusively fought wars in the summer. Uh, you would let the armies go home at harvest time, and then the weather would turn bad, and everybody stayed home through the winter. And you just pick the war back up where you left off in the spring after the planting. So it was it was tactically a good idea because nobody expected him to attack in the middle of the winter. Uh, but apparently that campaign was just and the conditions were just terrible. And Thomas Paine said, here are American citizens. Of course, they didn't call themselves American citizens at the time. But they had no beef with the Duchy of Hanover. They were only there because England demanded conscripts and they were going to war. And so we're, we're there. We're sending our men into these terrible conditions to fight somebody that we have absolutely no beef with just because of our attachment to England. Thomas Paine expands on this. He says, Europe is too thickly planted with kingdoms to be long at peace. And whenever a war breaks out between England and any other foreign power, the trade of America goes to ruin because of her connection with Britain. The next war may not turn out like the last, and should it not, the advocates for reconciliation now will be wishing for separation then, because neutrality in that case would be a safer convoy than a man of war. Everything that is right or natural pleads for separation. The blood of the slain, the weeping voice of nature cries, "'Tis time to depart. Even the distance at which the Almighty hath placed England and America is a strong and natural proof that the authority of the one over the other was never the design of heaven. The time, likewise, at which the continent was discovered adds weight to the argument, and the manner in which it was peopled increases the force of it. The Reformation was preceded by the discovery of America.' as if the Almighty graciously meant to open a sanctuary to the persecuted in future years, when home should afford neither friendship nor safety. Besides, what have we to do with setting the world at defiance? Our plan is commerce, and that, well attended to, will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her bareness of gold and silver secure her from invaders." That last statement probably sounds strange because there is a lot of gold and silver deposits in America. Those are mostly out west. Uh, the very little gold has ever been found on the East Coast. There has been a little bit, and I'm sure there's been some silver deposits found too, but very small amounts on the East Coast. At this time in the colonies, and I could be wrong, uh, so don't send me any hate mail uh, from economists or anything, but I think that the number one export from the Americas at this time was timber. England had been logged out for a couple of generations, but you know they still had a growing population. Those people need houses. We were shipping a lot of just raw timber across the Atlantic to help build stuff in England and probably all of Europe, really. And that really, at this point in time, was really the biggest resource that America had was just land and resources. Um, you know, England's not large i mean even today i think england the whole population of the entire uk something like 30 million and at this time and i'm not talking about all of america i'm just talking about the original 13 colonies i i believe and again i'm probably remembering this wrong i think just total landmass the 13 colonies was something like five times the land that all of england has you know space was at a premium in europe at this point people lived in europe for 1500 years And yes, I'm aware that the Native Americans were here for thousands of years before 
Europeans discovered the continent, but the Native American population was a fraction of what it was before we ever showed up. That's a a story for a show unto itself. I will uh, I'll I'll get into that soon because it is kind of an interesting story and it's one that again that's stuff that I don't know why they don't teach this stuff, but you never hear about this in school. Uh, but if you if you listen to my Thanksgiving episode about why the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, one of the reasons was is there was an abandoned Indian village there. I mean, there were all these houses that were just sitting empty and they could stop there for what they thought was going to be a few days and they didn't have to build shelters or do anything. They just moved their stuff into these empty houses. So, yes, I understand that there were people there, but the country was by and large extremely empty. And that was something that you just didn't have a lot of in England or anywhere in Europe, really, was just open spaces. And, of course, trees that you could cut down, because like I say, everybody still needed a house. They were still building things, but England didn't have any timber. They had cut all those trees down years and years ago. But probably the strongest argument that Thomas Paine makes in this section of the of the pamphlet is simply that England has attacked us. They have killed our militiamen. Hostilities have broken out. Can we ever go back to the way things were, knowing that they had attacked us? He mentions people that were living in Boston, and I think Boston actually had a pretty large percentage of the population were loyalists. They were not interested in revolution. But Thomas Paine says of people that lived in Boston, But let our imaginations transport us for a few moments to Boston. That seat of wretchedness will teach us wisdom and instruct us forever to renounce a power in whom we can have no trust. The inhabitants of that unfortunate city, who but a few months ago were in ease and affluence, have now no other alternative than to stay and starve or turn out and beg. Men of passive tempers look somewhat lightly over the offenses of Britain, and still hoping for the best are apt to call out, Come, come, we shall be friends again for all of this. But examine the passions and feelings of mankind. Bring the doctrine of reconciliation to the touchstone of nature, and then tell me whether you can hereafter love, honor, and faithfully serve the power that hath carried fire and sword into your land. If you cannot do all of these, then you are only deceiving yourself, and by your delay bringing ruin upon posterity. Your future connection with Britain, whom you can neither love nor honor, will be forced and unnatural, and being formed only on the plan of present convenience, will in a little time fall into relapse more wretched than the first. But if you say you can still pass the violations over, then I ask, Hath your house been burned? Hath your property been destroyed before your face? Are your wife and children destitute of a bed to lie on and bread to live on? Have you lost a parent or a child by their hands, and yourself the ruined and wrecked survivor? If you have not, then you are not a judge for those who have. But if you have and can still shake hands with murderers, then you are unworthy of the name husband, father, friend, or lover, and whatever may be your rank or title in life, you have the heart of a coward and the spirit of a sycophant. That, in my opinion, is a pretty powerful statement. Um, that is as close to fiery rhetoric, rhetoric that I have heard him come to in this book. Uh, like I said, he does not speak in hyperbole. He does not you know, rant and rave. He's just very measured, very confident in what he's writing. But those are some excellent points that he made in this. And there are some other things. I'm just hitting the highlights. But like I say, I don't want to just read the book verbatim to you. What's the fun in that? Who wants to hear my hillbilly draw do that for 
for the hours that it would take to read that book. And plus, I'd probably get sued for copyright infringement. But that is pretty much the end of the chapter. Like I say, there is some more stuff in there. But if you want to pick this book up, I think I paid $7 for this. It's only, like I say, it's only like 70 pages long. I urge you, get this, read it. If nothing else, just because this is a piece of our history. I mean, like I said, this is one of the most important works in the history of our country, and nobody reads it anymore. But we are very close to the end of the pamphlet. Uh, next episode, we'll finish up the book, and I'll I'll do my wrap-up on it. Um, I've really enjoyed reading this. I, I hope you enjoy me doing a book review on this. Um, this is some interesting stuff. It's very well written. I'm, I'm impressed with how Mr. Payne writes and, and the arguments he's making. I really liked the point he made about how so many people in the colonies were not English, that we had people from all over Europe. A lot of Germans came to this country in that time. Uh, you had Scandinavians. And you know, anytime you talk to anybody that's got Scandinavian, they're always so proud of their Viking heritage. And I've never understood that. I mean, I know that you, we kind of put warrior societies up on a pedestal. But, I mean, really, when you think about it, you know, it, oh, my ancestors were Vikings. Really, what did they do? Uh, they spent a few hundred years raping and pillaging their way across Europe, stole a bunch of stuff. Yeah, they, they sound like good people. Seems a strange thing to be proud of. I mean, I mean, most of Europe was just terrified that these guys were going to show up because they would just brutally murder and rape everything they saw. And that's sort of a badge of honor because that was one of your one of your ancestors. And I know what we're focusing more on the the warrior culture and the exploration things. We're kind of sweeping under the rug the centuries of raiding up and down the European coast. But I digress. That is about all I've got for you today, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, I'm certainly enjoying reading this work. If you did enjoy the show, please leave me a like and a comment, and a subscription is always greatly appreciated. As always, you can leave me a comment at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys. Hope you enjoy your work week. I hope you're enjoying the shows I'm doing on Thomas Paine, and I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much.